Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jackie Speer is leaving Congress, which is a loss for the country. An impactful and respected legislator from the San Francisco area, she's led a life of service informed by deep and sometimes tragic experience. She wrote a memoir about this a few years ago called Undaunted, which I highly recommend. I sat down with her yesterday to speak about that journey and this challenging moment in our history. Here's that conversation. Jackie Spear, it's such an honor to be with you. I, I've done many, many, many of these podcasts uh, with people in public life. I don't think I can count too many whose stories are as inspiring as yours. So thank you so much for making time for us. Well, it's an honor to be with you, David. You're a, a great source of consult for all of us who um, work in this circus. So <laughs> thank you. For yeah, that. Well, we'll talk about the circus, but I want to first talk about your life, because actually it's been one of, of trial at times, and those trials are pretty relevant to the debates that we're having today. I, I know you must be thinking about that a lot, but first tell me about your, your family and uh, your folks and uh, how you arrived on the great West Coast of, of our country. Very blue-collar upbringing. Uh, neither parent went to college. My father was from Germany. Actually, uh, his father was a place in Buchenwald for mm. uh, a period of a month, and then they all escaped to uh, Shanghai during the war years. And my father uh, eventually came to San Francisco because he had seen a movie called San Francisco and was captivated by it. He rented a room from my mother, who had saved her nickels and dimes by not taking the streetcar to work, and she had bought a pair of flats in San Francisco and she was renting out rooms and her mother and sister moved in with her and that's how they met. And so I was raised in a you know very blue collar family. My father was a, a teamster. Um, my mother became a, an adult education upholstery teacher and worked until her 90th year. And uh, they lived to be 91 and 93. Her family was from, from Armenia, correct? Right. Her family was from Armenia. So I had the genocide Holocaust experience on both sides of my life. And uh, she lost family members in the, the genocide. And, you know, there was a cloud that followed her around because most Armenians had this, this great angst about what had happened to their people and how they were you know, the first genocide of the 20th century. So I remember, by the way, when I was in the White House, all of the drama around, is it April 24th? Is that the... That's right. Yes. Uh, you know, which is the date in which we remember that 
genocide, but the whole debate was whether we could call it a genocide because the Turks are very sensitive to that issue. You must have been, you must be uh, right in the middle of that discussion all the time. I certainly was. And, you know, finally, when we were, I mean, I was calling on Kim Kardashian to talk to Donald Trump to try and get him to (laughs) finally (laughs) make the statement. But, you know, finally, uh, both the House and Senate, we passed the resolution by voice vote in the Senate, I might add, and only, I think, 11 no votes in the House. But it took 10, 12 years of gnashing of teeth. And then President Biden this year spoke up very powerfully about the Armenian genocide that was the first uh, genocide of the 20th century, killing 1.6 Armenians. How, how you, you mentioned child of uh, the Holocaust on one side, the, the Armenian genocide on the other. How much did that hover over your family? How much was that part of the family lore? Well, Actually, I didn't find out about my grandfather then, then very recently. Um, so it was really suppressed on my father's side of the family. He was a Catholic. My grandmother was Catholic. There was no talk of my grandfather even being Jewish. And that kind of evolved over time. So, so he, had, he was Jewish and then he converted to Catholicism? My no, my, my father was raised as a Catholic. No, so your my, grandfather. Oh, my, no, my grandfather uh, never became a, a Catholic. No, he oh, was. Oh, I see. He was Jewish, but it was totally suppressed because of what he had endured. Ah. Uh. And so, I, no, I was just raised with some real, real blue collar values. Mm-hmm. You know, we we never went out to dinner. We didn't go on vacations. It was a big deal to go to McDonald's a couple times a year. So that was. You know, a, a great lesson of life. And and you went to uh, you went to Catholic school. What what was it that that drew you to to public service? So, by the way, I went to public school from K through eighth. I chose to go to an all girls Catholic school. I actually even contemplated becoming a nun while I was at Mercy High School in Burlingame. So, what really triggered my interest was working on then Assemblyman Leo Ryan's campaign when I was 16 as part of a class assignment. That's what initially um, created the interest in government service. Certainly, social justice was woven into everything that I learned in the, the high school I went to. Well, I want to, obviously, Leo Ryan is so uh, central to your history. Well, uh, but before we talk about him and your experiences with him, uh, what drew you to, what, what caused you to want to leave the public schools and go to Catholic school? You know, that's a very good question. I just was enamored by the, the Sisters of Mercy. I you know, went mm-hmm. to uh, catechism classes while I was in public school, and it was just a draw. And, you know, faith has played an extraordinary role in my life through many setbacks and traumas. So it, I think that faith just drew me there. You also uh, changed your name. I did. You, you, you must have been one hell of a willful child. <laughs> uh, you changed your name as part of your confirmation process. Your, 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 your birth name was was Karen. Apparently, you didn't like it very much. No, I didn't like the name Karen because my mother would always scream, Karen, and I hated that. Um, <laughs> little did I know Karen was going to become such a, uh, a symbolic name later in life. <laughs> yeah. Did you, uh, so, so how did you become Jackie? So I took Jacqueline as a confirmation name, and so when I went to Mercy High School, I was 
you know, I didn't know anyone, and I just told everyone my name was Jackie. And that was it. So my parents were very offended, of course, and took them a long time to start calling me Jackie. <laughs> so talk, talk to me about your relationship with uh, Congressman, uh, then Assemblyman Ryan, because that was a fateful partnership. Talk to me about how that impacted on you and how it evolved. So, you know, I was drawn to politics in part, I guess, because I'd read the local newspaper. He started out as a mayor of the city in which um, I was raised and then worked on his campaign. And, you know, I must say, and I write this in my memoir, there are things that just happen. Uh, My parents got a card in the mail saying, would you contribute? I filled it out and said, I don't have any money, but I'd like to work on a campaign. And so I got a call on a Saturday morning and I'm vacuuming. I can't even quite hear what was coming through the speaker of the phone. And it was actually his campaign manager asking me to come to meet. Um, And so I went to this address, which was, as it turns out, Ryan's home. And they were interviewing what they were calling Ryan girls. Painful for me to say, I even have a picture of it. (laughs) And it was during the, you know, Beatlemania. So they were, you know, we had black knitted tights and mini skirts and white boots and it was in black turtlenecks and we ran around the communities passing out literature. So that was my first involvement. And then I, um, I only applied to two colleges, Stanford University and UC Davis. And my parents didn't want me going to Berkeley because it was too radical. So I didn't get accepted to Stanford. And so I went to Davis. I hadn't been to Davis. I didn't, you know, I just, and I show up there and it was 20 minutes from the state capitol. And so that's what started my real pursuit in life. And again, faith played a huge part in that. So I worked first as an intern in his office, um, then as a staffer, then came back when he ran for Congress and worked as a legislative assistant and then as legislative counsel after I graduated from law school. Yeah. And the reason his name, you know, he was a he was a fine progressive lawmaker. The reason his name is embedded in history is because of this horrific tragedy uh, that you were a part of. And it had to do with something called the People's Temple that rested in his district, led by uh, the Reverend Jim Jones, who was a, a cult leader, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So, so talk about that and, and what it led to. So Jim Jones was very connected in San Francisco politics because he could put 3,000 people on the streets to campaign for candidates. And so he rose the ranks and got appointed to different commissions. But there was this rumbling that there were people that were leaving the People's Temple, that there was concerns about um, suicide packs and physical abuse and sexual abuse. And a number of constituents of Congressman Ryan had young adults that got involved in it because it was interracial and it was, you know, kind of a utopian world they were trying to create. So um, Congressman Ryan was a real maverick and was someone who was very experiential in the way he legislated. So he decided after meeting with the concerned relatives group and a defector that he wanted to go and see firsthand what was happening. And uh, he was on the Foreign Affairs Committee and protecting American citizens abroad was, was one of the um, missions. And so uh, we made the trip there. There was two staff that went on the trip and we had to negotiate an actual invitation to come to the, to the commune. And it was in the middle of a jungle. I mean, there was, it took forever to go three miles in this jungle. And 
So we got there and we had a tour and the congressman um, spoke and we provided, um, we had many letters from family members who wanted to make sure they got to their kids, young adults. And so we, we interviewed a number of them. Media was on the trip. And um, one of the reporters, Don Harris, was slipped a note that said, we want to get out. And so at the end of the evening, he brought this over to the congressman and I just, my heart fell because then I knew, you know, all that we feared was true. And so the next morning, more and more people wanted to leave. So it became a, a powder keg. Um, it was just the, the tensest experience probably of my life. And uh, we eventually got to the airstrip and unbeknownst to us. And you had members of, of, uh, of, of the, of the cult with you who wanted to to leave. Yes. Yeah. There were probably, I don't know, 20, 25. And there was a problem that we needed to order another plane. And so we get to the airstrip and I'm loading passengers onto the two planes and uh, Congressman Ryan is talking with people off to the side. And then, what we didn't know is a tractor trailer followed behind us some distance and then they came onto the airstrip and started shooting. And so and, we just ran under the plane. And the congressman was, was hit and killed and you were shot. Uh, talk about that because this was a, I mean, you had to essentially, well, I don't want to give away the story, but it, it's just unthinkable what you went through. Talk, talk so, about your own experience. Congressman Ryan was shot 45 times. I mean, they had identified who they wanted to kill. I had run off under the plane as well, and I hid behind a wheel. And I was lying with my, on my side with my head down, trying to pretend I was dead. And then I was shot five times. And I looked to my body, and my whole right side of my body was blown up, and bones coming out of my arm. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, good Catholic girl, I say the act of contrition and uh, waited for the lights to go out. And I thought of my grandmother, who um, just kind of motivated me. She was just this remarkable person. And I eventually dragged my body to the cargo hold. The plane wasn't going anywhere because it had bullets through it. And someone pushed me into the cargo hold. And then eventually they took me out of the plane and put me on the side of the airstrip, unfortunately on a, an anthill. Oh, God. And as, as I've said many times, you don't sweat the small stuff when you're dying. It was at the time we used tape recorders and there was a reporter's tape recorder nearby. And I asked if I could send a message to my parents. And so I kind of gave my last will and testament in this tape recording, you know, expecting to die on that airstrip. Got through that night, 22 hours, no medical attention. And those that survived that had gone into the little town that had a bar the NBC producer would come back occasionally and, and bring this 150 proof rum. And I would take swigs of the rum to get through the night. Um, you knew uh, at that time that the congressman was, was dead. Yes, I did. So in addition to your own pain, which must have been extraordinary and the sense that you weren't going to survive, you knew that he was gone and you had, you had, such a, a close working relationship with him. How much was that on your mind? Yeah, you're, you're in a state of shock. And, and the expectation was that the, the Jonestown crew would come back and finish us off. So I just prayed. And I mean, there was great pain about having lost the mentor, but 
it was this sense of doom that mm-hmm. I was trying to cope with at the time. This shooting, I want to I want to pick the story up in a second about the sort of lasting impact of that on you and your life. But we just had another mass shooting uh, this time in in Buffalo. When these things happen, how do you react to them as someone who has been the victim of a mass uh, shooting? It's it's very emotional for me. Um, for an, for years, when we would do these moments of silence, I would just walk off the house floor. I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate it. When I was in the state legislature, I had carried carried the assault weapon ban on the yeah. assembly side, and uh, one of my colleagues was challenging me, saying, "How can you carry this legislation? Have you ever shot an assault weapon?" And I thought, if you're stupid enough to ask me this question, I'm going to give it right back to you. And I said, no, I haven't, but let me ask you one. Have you ever been shot by an assault weapon? Now, to just show you how, how we have changed in this country. So that bill passed the House, passed the Assembly and the Senate and the state legislature. It went to then Governor Pete Wilson, a Republican, who yeah. signed it into law. And now we can't even get a closing a loophole on background checks passed in the Senate because the NRA has a lock on that institution. Yeah, it struck me the other day, you know, it, it, it seems it's obvious to say, but it's um, also really stunning to think maybe the battle has been lost uh, because there are so many guns on the streets. We have more guns than people now on the streets. And you have to ask yourself, did the gun lobby win? Is this an irrevocable plague on our country? No other country, no other country has a problem of this magnitude. And I don't know, how do you get the, how do you get the, the, the toothpaste back in the tube now? How do you reverse these problems when guns, what you hear from your colleagues uh, uh, who support who oppose any gun laws is, well, just let people have more guns and then people can defend themselves against people with guns. That seems like a disastrous approach. You raise a really hard question to answer because you don't get into this business without a belief that you can change things. And yet we've been so unsuccessful. I've done gun buybacks in my district for years. Um, Some people snicker, but it's taking these guns out of the uh, universe. And, you know, it's, it's astonishing. I live in a pretty, you know, blue district and we had assault weapons and we had sh- sawed off shotguns and we had guns that had the serial numbers scratched. I mean, you know, they were crime guns. And, you know, I share your, your sense of distrust that we can get anything done, but we can't, we just can't give in to this because you can go in all these countries around the world. I mean, Norway, I think, has only eight murders a year. You know, we have, you know, eight murders in 15 minutes in this country. Yeah. And it doesn't stop. So I've got to believe that the next generation that will take over the reins of power in this institution um, will have more willingness to to do things that we've been incapable of doing. Yeah. Uh, you, you talk about the... Uh... Uh, you know, moments of silence on the floor. I mean, it's almost become a, a cruel joke, the the sort of 
the statements of uh, uh, of sympathy each time these things happen, the statements of horror that w- when no action follows. Right. It's so hypocritical, really. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I mentioned earlier this tragedy, this unthinkable tragedy that you went through, really impacted on you in in so many different ways. And I read one thing that really touched me, which was the impact it had on you as a young woman who was seeking relationships. Talk about that, because I don't think it would occur to people that this is one of the ramifications of many. You know, as someone who survives gun violence, I mean, there's a lot of, there's obvious grief, but there's guilt because you survived and others didn't. And then for me, uh, I had, you know, 10 surgeries. They thought they were going to amputate my leg and my arm at one point because I had gas gangrene so bad. And then after I was sort of all put together with skin grafts, everything, I, my body is, is deformed. And then you get into relationships and before you can even you know become intimate you've got to explain that that you're you've got a very scarred body i talk about this in my book where the sense of of freedom came to me when i took off this because i never when i wore a swimsuit always was covered i took off the the wrap and i walked along the beach in hawaii and it didn't matter what if people were looking at me or not and you know, it was when I finally recognized this is who I am. I'm embracing it and I'm moving on. You ran for the congressman's seat. You didn't win. But ultimately, you, you got, uh, I think the next year, you got elected to the Board of Supervisors, San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. Why were you so committed to, to holding public office? And talk about the barriers that you faced as a young woman in what did a male preserve largely uh, elective office? I guess when I ran for Congress, by the way, I have the record in Congress. It took me 29 years to get back here after I ran and lost. <laughs> yeah, there should be a persistence award for that. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, when I ran for Congress and lost, I realized that, you know, that I, I had something to offer and that I did want to make changes and that I... I thought that the process of becoming elected would allow me to do that. So I ran for the Board of Supervisors against a 20-year incumbent, and no one thought I you know, had a chance and got elected. And then six years later, ran for the state legislature. And Willie Brown was the Speaker of the Assembly, and he wanted nothing to do with me. And they spent a truckload of money trying to make sure I didn't get elected. And We should just put, give people a little context. Willie Brown... Uh, was a uh, legendary figure uh, as Speaker of the California Assembly, ruled with an iron hand. You were, I guess, a bit too independent. Is that the... That's right. That's exactly right. And so I was running against a brother-in-law of a seated member in the Assembly. So it was the year of the family. I ran and um, it was a tough race. And, you know, I couldn't get any campaign resources from... Sacramento, it was all very grassroots. So I got elected by less than 555 votes out of 40,000 votes cast. And um, Willie Brown made me a deputy whip quite 
early because he wanted to keep his eye on me. But um, <laughs> then I um, served there for 10 years and we had term limits. But during that time, I got married and we had our first child. And then I had a, a number of miscarriages and one abortion at 17 weeks, which was what has become known as the first time a member of Congress has talked about it on the House floor back in 2011. Yeah. And then um, when I was pregnant with our second child, my husband was killed in an automobile accident by a young driver who had no brakes and ran a red light. Uh, so, you know, that was yet another test of whether or not I could survive. And I didn't want to go on. I really didn't. But you had a child and one on the way. And I had a, a Germanic father who, when I said, Dad, I don't think I can keep doing this. He said, Jackie, it's been three months. Get over it. <laughs> Talking about the death of my husband. And it was, it was a tough time. I told him I was at bed rest because of this pregnancy. It was high risk. And I told him, get out of my bedroom. <laughs> I didn't talk to him for a number of weeks. But, you know, it was that, that you know, you, you got to move on. You, you, you've got, you just... You got to find the lemonade in lemons. And so that's what I did. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, 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 I have a child who, who has epilepsy, chron- chronic illness. And she was, we thought we were going to, we almost lost her a, a, a few times. And it was a nightmarish experience, her childhood and the impact on the whole family. And uh, people would say, well, how do you, I don't know how you deal with that. And the answer is, you really don't have a choice, right? You don't, it's not like an option. Uh, you have to find a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, my heroic wife, uh, Susan, led us through the darkness. But, but it is when you look back, you say, wow, that was a tough road. And yours was particularly so just unimaginable series of events. You, you mentioned uh, some of these miscarriages, by the way, were they, they also were related to that some of your difficulties with pregnancy to the sh- to the shooting is that fair to say well there was speculation that i couldn't have children at one point and uh you know then i did get pregnant and we had our first child um who's now 34 years old and then i had these these two miscarriages one at 10 weeks and then one at 17 weeks so that takes us to the second big debate of the day of of this day uh, because we're l- literally weeks away from a Supreme Court ruling that, you know, famously now uh, appears to be a reversal of Roe versus Wade. You had this uh, abortion at, at 17 months. Uh, 17 weeks. 17 weeks, I should say, 17 months. I apologize. It was a late night last night, an election night last night. So tell me, share your thoughts now. Talk about the experience to have that abortion. And talk to me about the debate we're having today. It was tragic because, you know, 17 weeks, you're moving on in your pregnancy and there's, you know, great anticipation. And my, the, the fetus had slipped through the cervix into the vagina. And so, you know, they tried to get the fetus to move back into the uterus and um, had me upside down overnight. And then, you know, that wasn't working. And so, you know, we, decided that the fetus wasn't going to be viable. So I, I decided, along with my husband, to terminate the pregnancy. It was, it was so painful. I mean, a woman doesn't get pregnant and then have an abortion without it being a painful experience. And uh, when we were, this was when the, 
the Republicans took over the House in 2011, and the first bill they introduced was H.R. 1, and it was to defund Title 10, defund Planned Parenthood, for all the services they provide to women that are not abortion-related, <clears throat> where they discover cancer and are able to save women's lives. But one of my colleagues was reading from a book and talking about limbs being you know, sawed off, and I'm thinking, I just, I lost it. And so I you know, spoke up and said, you have no idea what you're talking about. And then spoke about my second trimester abortion. You know, I want to ask you about this. Uh, one of the things that I think frustrates most people about this discussion is partly what you just said, which is the characterization of these decisions as some sort of casual form of birth control. And uh, you just described the agony of that decision. But there's also conflict of if you believe that life begins at conception, what are the implications of that? These are not easy questions. And somehow we've lost the ability to understand the complexity of these questions, that there are conflicting imperatives here. So talk to me about that. I want your I need your wisdom, Congresswoman. So. You know, what's lost in this discussion is, is the reality that 59% of women that get abortions are mothers. More often than not, there's, there, it's because of a complication or because of the time in their lives and their responsibilities to their children that they feel they cannot you know, bring another um, child into the world at this time. Now, mind you, um, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, I keep saying over and over again, you are pro-birth, you are not pro-life. Because yes. you don't give a damn about what happens after these children are born. And the fact that there's so much interest in wanting to have control over whether or not you put a mask on your mouth, but you want to get into my uterus, is, you know, it sends me into orbit. And, and I think most women into orbit because... Yeah. It, it, it is, you know, as you know, I mean, you're taking a right away from a woman and her family and her doctor, and you're saying the government is going to make you have this child. And it is, and, and we have this whole fundamental belief in separation of church and state. Now, while Catholicism promotes life at conception, that is not the beliefs of other religions. And how are we then using that um, as a basis on which to, you know, restrict a woman's right to choose and have this kind of control over her body. And then couple that with the fact that we are, um, we're not even talking about the impregnator. Mm -hmm. There's no talk about the impregnator. Meaning if, uh, if someone is the victim of, 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 well, of it, rape. If or, rape yeah. or incest, or just the fact that, you know, you had a romp in the backseat of a car and you got pregnant and it's all it's all on you as the woman and there's no responsibility to the man who was you know part of that process it does take two mm. so that's lost in this whole discussion as well yeah i remember uh, one of your uh, colleagues uh, barney frank arguing on the floor of the house once on a sort of postnatal health bill or something 
that uh, to the opponents that you you guys believe that life begins at conception and ends at birth, which is the same point that that you're making. And I I don't think people appreciate how destructive this is going to be to the family unit and to women generally in the future, because over 36 million women will be in states that you cannot get an abortion. And in California, I think we're seeing 500 a day coming into California to get abortions from Texas now. But it's such a fundamentally personal decision. And yet it has become this, you know, pinata that can be batted around by by people who I think really want to, to put the brakes on women having any economic success. I do think that Justice Alito, the rhetoric is so hot in that draft opinion that it reflects on someone who is offended that more than 50% of the women in law school and in medical school now are women, that there needs to be some kind of shutting down of uh, women's economic success. You know, um, advocacy for women has been a through line of your of your whole career, dating back to the county board, including on the issue of sexual harassment, sexual assault. Uh, you're on the Armed Services Committee. You, you've uh, campaigned uh, relentlessly to change the way sexual assault is dealt with by the military. And You've also talked along the way, and one of the reasons you're so effective as a public official is that you're willing to be revealing of your own life and your own experiences. And you've you had experiences with sexual abuse, with sexual harassment, um, including as a child. Yeah, um, that was very hard for me to write about because I had so compartmentalized it. But my, my grandfather had sexually abused me as a, as a child. And How old were you? I was five, six, seven. Oh, my. Um, I was young. And it was, you know, when my parents would uh, drop us off for a weekend and um, I would, you know, take a nap with my grandfather. I almost, I almost didn't put it in the book, but then I did because I thought, you know, it happens in families all the time, 25%. And if we don't talk about it, just like we don't talk about abortion, how can we ever fix the, the pain associated with these issues? So, you know, it, it was revealing to me that when I was looking at all the passion I have around these issues, around um, sexual assault and rape, and I was trying to figure out why do I have this, this burning need to, to be working on these issues? And then it sort of clicked. It, it dated back to this childhood experience. You didn't take this to your parents, uh, is that right, for a long time? That's right, for a long time. Because the whole thing was so, I mean, the whole thing felt, you know, you don't know. Is this this right? Is this wrong? Um, And eventually I did tell my mom, who basically wanted to, I don't know that she didn't believe me or just thought that I was exaggerating. Didn't want to believe you, maybe. Yeah. So, you know, so you, you take your experiences to, into your life. I have been like this watchful mother with my kids for fear that they could ever be in a, a situation where they could be you know, physically abused, sexually. You, you write about also just, just sexual harassment that 
you experienced along the way. And you, you know, as any woman does when particularly in the period of time in which you were rising and, and in the profession that you chose or the field that you chose, how, how much progress have we made on that issue? And then I, I want to ask you specifically uh, uh, about the, the sort of Me Too movement that has grown up. So, you know, I, I first did some work on this issue when I was in the state legislature uh, because young women talked about it to me. And so I, uh, I carried legislation to require sexual harassment training for all the members. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was not a healthy environment there. So then I came to Congress and we weren't doing anything. And I remember sitting with the Rules Committee chairman at the time, asking him if, you know, that I wanted to do something on this. And he just basically said, no, we're never going to do anything. And uh, so when the Me Too movement occurred, this, I thought this is, this, we've got to take advantage of this moment and see what we can do. And in the legislature, in the Congress, believe it or not, the perpetrator, typically the member, was being represented by counsel. Um, the victim was not represented by counsel. She was told to um, wait 30 days. There was this mandatory effort to um, negotiate something. And then there was a cooling off period. And then the taxpayers picked up the tab. So that all had to be changed. And so when um, the Me Too movement took off, you know, I told the story about a chief of staff forcing himself on me and kissing me uh, one night late in, as a staffer. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of took off. And then all these women started coming to me. And these stories were, some were disgusting. Um, some were just tragic. But their lives were scarred. And there was, there was no avenue for kind of support or compensation. And so we've changed that. And now, you know, members are all on notice and they have to have the training every, every year. And, you know, so um, I feel like we've made some progress there. How much of it is happening now? I don't know. I try to ask that question from time to time. Um, I haven't gotten any specific answers, but I, I do know that the staffers know and the interns know and the fellows know that they have rights there are protections and um, that that is part of the system now. Let, let me talk to you about this political moment that we're in. Um, you're leaving the, the, the Congress. First of all, you know, talk about that because you're obviously still a person of uh, extraordinary capacities and a lot of experience, a voice of wisdom, and you you're choosing to leave. Why? You know, life um, life offers up opportunities and responsibilities, right? And my husband sat me down. So, you know, subsequently to losing my husband, having my second child, um, eight years later, I remarried. And my husband, Barry, has adopted both um, our children. And we've been married now for 20 years. And he sat me down and he said, you know, you've been a weekend wife for 20 years. When are we going to have some time? And I owe it to him. Uh, I do not want to leave. I, I still have lots of work to do. I'm working on suicide in the military right now, and I've spent time in Alaska. And But there's also a, a time to pass the torch. And I've been in public life now almost 40 years. 
I've been in Congress almost 15, which is just very long in this, <laughs> the scheme of things uh, for some. But so I'm going to find a way to have a voice outside of these marble hallways. But I still want to stay engaged. Well, first of all, thank you for your work on suicide in the military. I lost my dad to suicide. And I, I, I think it's, uh, it's such a huge really unaddressed issue. It's a huge cause of death in this country. But in the military, it's particularly pernicious and uh, not enough has been done to try and prevent suicide and offer the kinds of services that these young service people need. I mean, to wait two or three months for an appointment to see a behavioral health specialist, is it, it makes me crazy. We've got to change it. And we've, we're going to put a, a bill together, a bipartisan bill. I'm doing it with uh, Senator Sullivan and Murkowski yeah. to address the issues, particularly in Alaska, where the numbers um, doubled last year, but uh, in the military generally. I, we've got to change the military mindset that these are not cogs in a wheel. These are human beings. And while <clears throat> there's this need to go through boot camp and make them a team and not an individual, they still have personal needs that have to be addressed. And um, I've done it in terms of medical malpractice at military treatment facilities where soldiers have not gotten the health care they needed and now have terminal cancer or have lost limbs because they've had flesh-eating diseases. I mean, we've just got to do more. We want these war fighters to protect us. Well, we've got to protect them as well. Yeah, and I think as a society, we have to fully embrace the uh, uh, the fact that depression is an illness, and we should treat mental illness as we treat other illnesses. They are not defects of character. And there's a stigma attached to that that has made it more difficult for people to reach out. And certainly in the military, where you're you know taught a, a, an ethic of, of rugged self-reliance, you know, the idea that you need to reach out for help is, is probably alien, but it's necessary <laughs> and important. And people shouldn't feel stigmatized in saying, I need to talk to somebody. I need, I need to work some things through. So, so appreciate you working on that issue. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Let's get to the institution, though, that you're leaving. How has it changed even in the 15 years that you've been there? I mean, I was candid with you before we started. I mean, I'm really worried about where we're going, the polarization, the sort of, you talk about stigma, the stigmatization of of working together, (laughs) you know, uh, and of trying to solve problems across party lines and so on. Tell me if, from your perspective where, where we are and in that institution and in our democracy. Uh, we are at a very dangerous point. You know, it's, it's become a war game. And we're not colleagues trying to address problems. We're colleagues who are trying to beat each other in a, you know, a, a game of power. And right now we're in a situation where 
In the House, we can't even pass bills on what is called suspension. They're non-controversial that both sides recognize should be passed. And we're sitting on the floor for six hours voting on you know, 20 measures that should have been taken up in a five-minute vote because there's this interest now among the colleagues on the other side to make sure we don't get anything done. And we're doing a good job of not getting anything done. And um, I, you know, I think we should rethink this. Maybe we need a unicameral legislature. If we, if we can't fix the filibuster, then, then let's make it a, a unicameral operation so we, we work together and come up with product. Because you won't pass, as you know, any number of bills that will just sit over on the Senate side and not get addressed. Or then they'll, you know, send, they'll ping pong a bill that they've carved that, you know, doesn't necessarily meet with what we want to do. And so we get stalled. And do you think uh, that, I mean, there is an impression that the, I think the average person has that both parties are vying for position and that a lot of time is spent in Washington kind of setting up the other side for the next election. I mean, is there any complicity on both sides in that regard? Is that because that's sort of a pathology of Washington? Well, there's no purists here, (laughs) but you know, part of it's done in a defensive and part of it's done in an offensive. When the uh, Republicans were in power and had those hearings on Benghazi and, you know, put Hillary Clinton on the on the stand for 11 hours. I mean, it was a $7 million project. They had over 30 hearings and they came up with nothing, nothing. Now we're in the process with the January 6th committee and, you know, that was a coup. That was an attempt of a coup. And, and that, I would argue, is a legitimate reason for investigation. It's not seen that way necessarily um, by the Republicans. If the Republicans were to win a majority in the House, I mean, they're going to go after Hunter Biden and we'll have two years of the crucifixion of Hunter Biden. And we'll, un- we'll all understand why the American people are so frustrated by our inability to you know, fix basic fundamental issues around, you know, uh, gas, groceries, baby formula, and to be able to move in a manner that will provide them relief. You know, uh, you, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what was going through your head on January 6th, given your experience in life and what happened in Jonestown what was going through your mind when all of this chaos erupted around you? So I was sitting in the gallery watching the proceedings. So when we were you know, told that the, that the Capitol had been breached, I mean, there was this sense of shock that how could that possibly have happened? And then we were told to pick up the pouch underneath our chairs and unzip it and pull out this aluminum foiled packet that you ripped open and there's a gas mask. And then we were told to you race across the, the gallery floor underneath the brass railings. And we did that. And then uh, take off your member pin and uh, lay on the floor. And mind you, you know, we're hearing all this noise and there's members of the um, Capitol Police that are at the front door of the House chamber with a, their guns drawn with a piece of furniture in front of the door. And then all of a sudden, the shot rang out. And I remember placing my 
cheek on the floor and it was cold, thinking, I'm going to lose my life not in Guyana, but in this, this sacrosanct place of democracy. And I really thought that it, I, there was this, all the blood sort of ran out of my body. There was this sense of resignation that they were just going to kill us. We just had a primary. And you know one of my concerns about the direction we're going is it's very easy to see an even more polarized house in uh, 2023 than we have in 2022 with fewer people who are who are conditioned to or inclined to seek out sort of bipartisan cooperation and who are committed to sort of finding solutions. Is that an unfounded concern? No, it's an absolute reality, actually. The likelihood of there to be exacerbated situations. I mean, the Republicans are already telegraphing that. They're telegraphing they're going to you know, bring members in contempt. They're going to take members off committees. They're, they're going to do everything we did plus times two. But you're also going to have a new class of legislators, more of whom come from the activist sort of wing of the Democratic Party. And there is a question about uh, the difference between activism and legislating. You know, and I, I applaud their uh, passion, but legislating is different than activism. Well, the, the likelihood of the extremes on both ends having more clout will probably doom us in terms of our ability to get much done. Um, we've seen it with just the four or five members on the Republican side that have, you know, taken control of, of Kevin McCarthy, and he he can't control them, and so he allows them to operate in the manner they do, and so, you know, we we are holding you know six hours of votes yesterday and today. I think on the Democratic side, uh, the progressives have a powerful voice, but we went too far. We just went too far. Well, what do you mean we went too far? Well, I, uh, we should have, um, the reconciliation bill should have been done and we should have taken half a loaf instead of one and a half loaves. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of, that is the nature of, of legislating in a functioning democracy. I mean, you know, the fact that we are, uh, our infrastructure is fraying, our social infrastructure, childcare jobs have been lost, their families are not able to go back to work. There's 1.4 million women who haven't gone back into the workforce since COVID. Um, and we couldn't get a childcare package through, I think was a, was a huge loss. Now, again, if it was a unicameral, maybe we would have been more successful. Yeah. And last, last question uh, on this, you know, some, at some point in the near future, Speaker Pelosi is going to move on. I think that's fairly clear. How much will she, she's a strong leader and a strong presence. How much will it impact on the Congress uh, and on the Democratic caucus when she moves on? I think it will have a, a profound effect. I mean, she will go down in history as probably the most effective speaker ever to serve. And I think whoever takes her place 
just by, you know, virtue of experience and legislative experience, life experience, will probably not have the same power and there will be more factions within the Democratic caucus that will assert themselves from time to time. Yeah, which, uh, which will contribute to the, the, the discord there. Right. As we leave, what gives you hope for our democracy, for our country in a really turbulent and challenging time? What gives me hope is that I do believe the next generation um, is poised to do things better than we have done. But I will say that social media has had such a profound impact on not having to talk about the truth anymore that I worry about that. I really worry that truth doesn't matter. And if truth Mm -hmm. doesn't matter, then we are in big trouble. So we've got to be purveyors of truth. We've got to be willing to speak truth. But we've got to find a way to work together. And and right now, there's no impetus to do that. You You raise a really important point, which is that we have misaligned incentives, both in our politics and our media today, where outrage and conflict is uh, rewarded and cooperation, truth, understanding is not. And that's a fundamental challenge for our democracy, for all democracies. Yeah, but we let me end on a on a positive note. You're you're an inspiration. Your life is an inspiration. You're a great example for public officials everywhere. And these young people that you're talking about, some of whom uh, are passing through our program at uh, the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, would well look to you as an example uh, as they consider what they want to do in the future. So I'm just so happy to sit down with you. And I want to thank you for all your service, not just the people of California, but to the, to the whole country. Well, thank you, David. I, I think it's the highest calling and I don't regret having dedicated my life to it. And if young people recognize that this is the way that you really can make great change in our country, we've just got to believe in them and help them do it. Well, you will be missed. And, uh, but I'm sure you will, as you say, find a way to make an impact wherever you are and whatever you're doing. So Jackie Spear, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.